The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook if you sign up for a two-week trial of their service. Audible has 40,000 titles available to download. For all the details, follow the links at guardian.co.uk slash audible. Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. First, it was tyres. Then, it was Google. And finally, it was chicken. Is the ongoing tension on trade between China and America going to take the world economy down? Or is this a Washington publicity stunt to take the spotlight off their own economic woes? This is The Business from The Guardian. 1929. The financial house of cards collapses and the overinflated stock market plunges into a Great Depression. A financial panic grips the world. I think it's very clear that we're entering a new era of quite significant protectionism. And this is something which is being actively encouraged by many governments in the Western world. Well, the United Steelworkers Union is going after China, saying it's hurting American business, specifically U.S. tire makers. The union has filed a petition calling for the federal government to cut the nearly 46 million consumer tires that are imported from China in half. China's very critical of the U.S. policies of quantitative easing, as, as many countries are. And they're saying, well, it's unfair to say that we're manipulating our currency and, on the other hand, uh, be printing money sort of as you will. With acute domestic problems, America would now isolate herself more than ever from the international scene. It started in America, but practically overnight, an economic blizzard swept the world. In the studio today, we've got Andrew Lillico, chief economist of the think tank Policy Exchange. John Hillary from the anti-poverty charity War and Want. Sukhdev Johal from the School of Management at Royal Holloway College, University of London. And The Guardian's very own economics editor, Larry Elliott. Welcome to you all. Larry, we heard a montage there taking us from the Great Depression to the present day. But when we talk about trade wars now, what exactly are we talking about? Well, at the moment we're talking about currency wars, the idea that people are manipulating their currencies in order to give themselves some advantage economically or in terms of their trade over another country. I mean, the fear is that the currency wars are really hot up and that there'll be retaliatory action and that countries will eventually start putting up physical trade barriers so they'll be they'll be slapping tariffs on other other people's goods so far during the uh, crisis of the last three years that hasn't happened but the fear is that if the currency tensions really brew up that the next stage of this will be fully fledged protectionism in the, in the sense that there'll be levies on Chinese imports into the US particularly. Andrew Lillico from Policy Exchange. We've had an awful lot of moaning from America over the last few years before the recession began about China and its exchange rate. What odds do you give on this escalating beyond sort of just jawboning to an actual full-on trade war? Oh, I think there must be a reasonable chance, there must be a reasonable risk that this would occur. Um, America has traditionally had quite protectionist instincts and under a little bit of pressure with its uh, domestic problems with unemployment being quite high and likely to remain so for some time, I think that those protectionist instincts may well come to the fore and there is a chance of them imposing explicit tariffs. Sukhdev Johal from Royal Holloway, do you think this is bigger than America-China? Do you think the, the sort of pressure of a trade war extends further around the world? I think war is probably the wrong kind of you know terminology to be using but if you step back kind of you know what's been happening kind of for example unfair trade kind of complaints or kind of you know different duties um china has been the main target for the last i think 10 years and the biggest complainer has not been the eu or america but india it's much more kind of spread out as a as, as an issue 
than just the industrialised countries. John Hillary from Warren One, um, as Sukhdev says, we often hear about uh, American China, but there are other uh, big uh, developing countries which also uh, want to get into these trade wars. What about the smaller developing nations? Well, I think for them it's a very different story because most of them have actually felt the negative impacts of trade liberalisation. The work we've done looking across, for example, the experiences of trade liberalisations in Africa and Latin America over the last 30 years have shown that whole industries have been wiped out by trade liberalisation. So for them, protectionism in their own economies is not a dirty word. And indeed, what we've seen in the most recent WTO studies is that their use of export controls has grown. That's been one of the areas which has been seen to rise in the last year or so. And that's a very positive thing because protectionism in many developing countries has a very important role to play in protecting most vulnerable industries, protecting the most vulnerable populations. For example, export um, controls for food are absolutely crucial at a time when we see rising food prices as a result of world shortages and things like that. Also, the ban on speculative activity, futures trades within commodities, that's a very positive form of protectionism. So just because the WTO will say this is a barrier to trade, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing for many developing countries. OK, that's a quick tour of the protectionist debate. We heard the economist Joyti Ghosh at the top of the programme. Here she is again. We have a whole range of measures whereby uh, governments encourage fiscal austerity at home, continue to suppress wage incomes and suggest that everybody has to rely on export-led growth, which is a very bizarre conclusion because obviously the entire world cannot try and export its way out of the problem. But all the Western countries seem to think that they can do this. And of course, what it means is that then there is a perception of other trading partners as threats competitors or people whom you have to force to behave. So we're entering a world where every import is seen as a direct attack on jobs, rather than a recognition that the overall uh, stagnation of jobs is because of macroeconomic policies and is because of completely bizarre harakiri austerity policies that uh, these governments have decided to embark on. And therefore you blame somebody else. Of course, the classic people to blame is first China and then the developing world generally. Why? Because they are exporting the products of cheap labour and we have to stop them. Andrew Lillico, does that basically sum up why protection is a bad thing? Well, I'm not sure that that's, uh, I wouldn't agree with um, very much actually of the of the sentiments there. I think one has to distinguish between a number of different points going on. So when one has a, what you might think of as a, a loose currency policy or a policy of keeping one's fixed exchange rate at rather a low level, I think the right way to think of that uh, is in terms of a loose monetary policy. So that can service your own domestic purposes as well as being anything to do with exports. And I think it's entirely legitimate for states to decide that they want to have loose domestic monetary policy. At some level, it's none of the US's darn business whether the, whether China has a loose monetary policy domestically. Of course, that may have some impact on the US in the same way as a, a loose monetary policy by the Fed has an impact on the UK. But that sort of matter has traditionally been thought of as largely a domestic question. In contrast, once you start saying, I'm not going to allow free imports of goods, I'm going to start imposing tariffs, then traditionally that's been thought of as a matter of penalising your own consumers, that that was the main people you're interested in. It wasn't that you ha- felt you had some particular duty to the exporters of other parts of the world. It was a matter of what serviced your own domestic interests. So the free trade argument... Is is something based around what
what's in your interests, not about um, what helps other people in other parts of the world. So I think that ultimately it's a question of a clash between consumers and producers. So if I am concerned about having very high levels of unemployment and I want to assist my domestic producers, then maybe I start worrying about uh, imports more and thinking I'm going to impose tariffs. Whereas if I'm more interested in my consumers, then I will be more favouring free trade. So how free should free trade be then? Uh, personally, I'm in favour of unilateral free trade. I think that you should just have free trade regardless of what other countries do, except in one particular set of circumstances. If you're trying to build nationhood, if you're trying to build a political arrangement, then it can be a, an advantage to have a common tariff externally amongst the parts of, the, uh, of this new state under construction. So, for example, I think that it's a good idea that there is a common external tariff within the European Union, because that's a state under construction. But in other kind of instances, I think it's best if you just have uh, no tariffs, and if other countries choose to impose tariffs on you, that's their problem. John Hillary, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I think that's fundamentally wrong, and particularly at the, at the current moment, we've come through a crisis caused by 30 years of untrammeled liberalisation, the increasing push towards freer markets, deregulated markets, liberalised regimes. And I think we've seen the knock-on effect of that around the world, not just in the richer countries where we've obviously felt the, the, the financial crisis aspect of it, but also severe losses in the developing world as well. It can't be right to say we just need to go back and have business as usual, more of the same, more free trade. And I think that's why the primary lesson which the UN has drawn, for, for example, UNCTAD in its recent studies, has said it's been shown that the free market is not able to deliver the same sort of developmental goals that had been hoped from it. We need to come in with a new form of state intervention, the developmental state, which worked very well in the 50s and 60s for the East Asian miracle economies. We've got to try and find a new version of that for the 21st century. Sukhdev, um, when you listen to the kind of free market argument put forward by Andrew Lillico, how do you think that squares with the development of the Japanese car industry, which spent about 40 years, I think, on a combination of subsidies and protection, various forms? Um, it's an interesting case. I mean, the Japanese cars were virtually unstoppable through the 70s and the 80s inside America. So there was kind of, you know, some kind of formal arrangement put in. But through kind of a combination of policy and persuasion, Japanese transplants had up in America. But um, if we kind of step back in terms of kind of free trade, there is a cyclical dimension to the problems with kind of open trade. For example, when there's a recession... Um, particularly manufacturing, because most of the exporting is invisible goods. It only takes a little amount of demand to fall in industrialised countries for those companies to be unsettled. So you only take away, say, 10 to 12% of of the output. It's enough to destabilise the business. So there is kind of unstructured, disorderly retreat, which leads to kind of businesses becoming too small in a downswing and then being too small on the upswing because they've lost capacity. So therefore, I do favour, in certain instances, that there are kind of um, policies imposed that do protect businesses, but in kind of a cyclical, kind of, you know, case by case. But that causes all kinds of problems in terms of, well, you can have protectionism in an industry where you don't produce anything, but what if you do produce something in that area? Financial services a 2.5% of GDP surplus on trade. Do we say, well, hang on a minute, we're just talking about manufacturers here, not about service, kind of, you know, these bits of paper. There's kind of all kind of disorderly policy kind of dimensions here. What you really do need to understand is that how quickly industries are unsettled causes huge dislocation in the domestic economy. 
And these are the kind of some of the things that we need to kind of engage in. Andrew, do you want to come back on those two? So I, I think that there will be instances in which you have issues of food security. So absolutely, it can be the case that you don't want to have a breakdown of order in your society caused by people starving. So there are going to be situations in which you might want to limit food exports. And, so and you, pe- would, you would back the kind of action Russia took a few months ago where it sort of stopped clamped down food exports? Well... I'm not sure that that specific case would be one that I would have in mind, but I think that there will certainly be instances. It would. It's a little bit odd um, situations such as that in the 1980s, where the Romanians were exporting food to try to get dollars at a time when they had people hungry inside their own country. But on the other hand. The other thing that occurs, a lot of people attribute structural changes to something fundamental that's going to last through the long term. So if you start off with a relatively closed economy and then you introduce trade liberalization, that will result in some structural change in your economy. So some of the businesses that existed before will no longer be viable because uh, imports will replace them. That will then lead to some transitional costs. So absolutely it will be the case that there'll be some periods of um, dislocation, unemployment and so on. And of course it could be that domestic political arrangements are sufficiently fragile that actually those transitional costs tend to dominate. If that starts to um, question the political order, then it could be undesirable. But in principle, what you're talking about here are transitional issues. Over the longer term, the aspiration should be to seek a situation in which we deal in a friendly manner with our neighbours. We exchange goods, we exchange ideas, we swap people, we learn from them. I think that the root, the root of trade is the route to peace, harmony and developing civilization. Larry, the, the, what the other three are talking about is basically timing. That There are times in which food is scarce, and then maybe Andrew thinks that you're justified in clamping down food exports. Or there are times in which you want to develop a car industry, so maybe you can get away with protecting it i mean how do you disentangle what what economists call the structural from the cyclical since you only ever you still live life going forward well i think the, the structural point is this that every country sees much more need for protectionism in there in the early stages of development i mean that's true of britain we had navigation acts in the 18th century to build up our industry the americans had a very big tariff 40 percent more on in, industrial goods in the 19th century most countries developed post-war in east asia Taiwan, Japan, South Korea have all, have all built up their industries behind, a, behind an industrial tariff. And as countries become more and more powerful, then they see the arguments for free trade. I mean, Britain became a free trading country in the 19th century when it was already fully developed. In the case of China, what you've got to see here is that they are protectionist because they are essentially trying to industrialise their country very rapidly. And having a very low value of their currency enables them to get people out of the fields into the factories and industrialise. So you've got to see, I mean, this is Andrew's point, really, their trade policy is essentially their domestic policy, which is all about rapid industrialization. For them, you know, the, the low exchange rate is similar to enclosures here in the 16th century. You're getting people off the land into the factories as fast as you possibly can. And what they're really worried about is if they allow their currency to rise rapidly, that industrialization process will will falter and therefore there will there'll be industrial unrest and, and civil unrest in China. So you know, you've got to, that, those are the big structural points. And as countries develop their industries, they become keener on free trade. Obviously, if you if you're if you're a dominant player in the car industry or you know like you know the computer industry in the US, you're very much in favour of free trade. If you're building up your industry and you're very weak, then you're in favour of protecting it until it's strong enough to compete on global markets. That's that's the difference, really. Well, lots of talk of China there, which is no surprise really, because the main trade battleground is between Washington and Beijing at the moment. For a taste of just how heated things are getting. Here's an advert from an American right-wing campaign group imagining a world run by China. Beijing, 
America tried to spend and tax itself out of a great recession. Enormous so-called stimulus spending. Massive changes to healthcare. Government takeovers of private industries and crushing debt. Of course, we owned most of their debt. So now, they work for us. You can change the future. You have to. Join Citizens Against Government Waste to stop the spending that is bankrupting America. So what's the perspective from Beijing? We asked The Guardian's China correspondent, Tanya Brannigan. I think the Chinese really feel quite aggrieved about some of the accusations that they've seen coming from the US. I mean, it's important to say that they do see the need for change themselves. In particular, they see a need broadly for rebalancing the economy and moving towards boosting domestic consumption. And that's something they've talked about for many years, although, of course, we haven't seen much progress, in a sense, on that front. But that's, that's certainly something that officials have said is a priority for them. But particularly with regard to appreciation, I mean, Officials do see a need for appreciation, but not at the kind of rate that the U.S. would want it. So we've seen claims coming out from the U.S. that the yuan is 20 or even 40 percent undervalued. And what the Chinese is looking at is a kind of appreciation that would be more in the three to five percent range. The Chinese also feel really that they've been treated very unfairly. So. In the sort of the broader sense, they feel that the rest of the world looked to China to save it from the economic crisis, and they all wanted China to have a strong economy, and yet now they're sort of turning around and saying, you're doing too well, it's terribly unfair in a sense. They also argue in the long run that the West enjoyed low inflation for years, thanks to all the cheap imports from China, and they feel that perhaps that hasn't been recognized, that they always get whacked for the trade imbalance, and the West hasn't acknowledged that in some ways that suited many developed countries. I think one thing that's very important to remember is that China is not on its own. It's not China versus the world here. If you look, the German economy minister has said recently that he's more critical of the US Treasury Secretary than of China. And that's something that China will certainly seek to build upon. It will make the case that plenty of other people are concerned by the way that the US is behaving. In particular, China's very critical of the US policies of quantitative easing, as, as many countries are. And they're saying, well, it's unfair to say that we're manipulating our currency and on the other hand, uh, be printing money sort of as you will. And so I think one important thing we're going to see is China really aligning itself with other countries. Tanya Brannigan there from Beijing. Um, Andrew Lillico, you began your opening gambit by talking about how countries were perfectly entitled to run extremely loose monetary policies. We're recording this on uh, Tuesday morning. Probably by the end of today, America will announce that it's going to go in for another round of quantitative easing. What Tanya's saying there is that actually if they do that, then that will aggrieve Beijing and possibly lots of other capitals even more. So there are costs involved with running very cheap monetary policy, aren't there? It does lead you towards some kind of trade conflict. Well, I'm not sure it leads you to trade conflict. One of the things that's going on there is that as part of the symbiotic relationship between the United States and the dollar zone, what's happened is that uh, many countries around the world have bought very heavily into U.S. government bonds. 
So if the US is, runs a very loose monetary policy, then there are two ways that could play out uh, that are of particular interest. One is that it could result in inflation, which would then tend to erode a lot of the value of those um, government bonds which other countries have bought, which those other countries would be unhappy about. The other possibility is that that eventually drives, forces those other countries to allow their currencies to appreciate versus the US, because otherwise they would import extremely loose monetary policy for themselves. In fact, many parts of the world are probably in unsustainable boom as a consequence of the very loose monetary policies adopted in the US at the moment. If that were to happen, if their currencies were eventually to be forced to appreciate, then that would cause them to crystallize, in domestic terms, a loss on those bonds. So if they're holding US um, dollar-denominated securities and their own currency goes up by 20% versus them, they've lost 20% of the value. Those are the kind of issues that they're concerned about. And of course, one of the consequences might be that if the um, US Congress really pushes too hard on some of these points, uh, other countries may say, all right, if you don't want us to hold your securities, in the end, we're not going to hold them. So we're going to sell them. And one of the ways that this could potentially play out is that the US faces a US government bonds crisis induced by currency issues. So we're used to thinking of, of government bond crises in Europe being something to do with the risk of sovereign default, right? say in the case of Greece. Well, there's a risk that in the US, the way that it plays out is that you get a government bond crisis induced by currency issues. And that would lead to a big fall in the value of the dollar, wouldn't it? Almost absolutely, so. I mean, absolutely. A catastrophic fall in the value of the dollar. It, it, would, it would also mean, it would probably also induce additional quantitative easing in the US because the way that the Fed would respond to that is by making sure that it did even more purchases of US government bonds itself. If others weren't going to buy them, then the Fed may have to buy them. And in fact, some of this might come quite quickly because it's possible that um, what will happen here is that when the US engages in additional quantitative easing, other countries will see this as a selling opportunity. They'll think, well, that's the market has now peaked. It was better to have traveled than to arrive, as they say in the markets, and you sell at that point. These things play out quite soon, in fact. So then the solution would be for America not to run an, uh, another round of quantitative easing, but actually go for more fiscal stimulus. Uh, I don't think so, because remember... If well, if they... you're going to annoy every single other country in the world by running extra cheap monetary policy, then what, what are your other options? And you've got an economy in a slump. What are your other options? I'm not saying that they shouldn't um, have be very loose with their monetary policy, but one of the things which is, which is liable to force them to do a bit more quantitative easing than they really might like is the need to service an ongoing increase in their deficit. If they had, if it were just a matter of the current stock of treasuries and they didn't need to add to it, then of course you'd have some issues associated with the dollar, but that wouldn't provide an urgent uh, question of how you actually manage to make your government run. Running a very large deficit makes them more vulnerable to this kind of an issue. So I think that there is a bit of a lack of concern, a bit of um, complacency in the US about this particular point, and that they would have done better to have had a more credible consolidation plan. They, they however, owing to some of the vagaries of the US political system may end up with a rather disorderly and ill-conceived um, consolidation occurring uh, by accident in February because there's the risk that unless there's political agreement in the US, we will find that suddenly a load of uh, tax cuts get undone and a load of spending rises all get undone, which nobody um, really meant to, are all coming at the start of next year. So it's not true that just any kind of fiscal consolidation is desirable for the US. The Americans have been in denial already for 20 years, haven't they? I mean, that's the real problem here, which is there's a big structural problem in the US economy, which is that you know, they've run bubble after bubble after bubble to disguise the fact that their manufacturing industry has been gradually hollowed out after over the last 25 years. And they're blaming the Chinese for a lack of 
putting their own health in order now. I think that that's the problem. They're using all these measures, quantitative easing, ultra-low interest rates, in order to, to get, get the economy going again. But it does have knock-on collateral effects. We are going to see that, I think, over the, over the coming years. Day of reckonings come. Yeah, I think. I mean, we've had the bubble in the, in, the, in the dot-com market. That was solved by an ultra-low monetary policy. And then we had a bubble in the housing market. That collapsed. And now they've got ultra-low interest rates and really accommodative monetary policy. And we've now got what looks like a colossal bubble building up in the bond market. And if that, if that collapses, that will be the, the bursting of the bubble to end all bursting of bubbles. And because it's not just the US economy that's going to be affected by that. It's every other, every other economy in the world will be affected by the by, by a bursting of the bond market bubble. Really and the banks. And the banks. But that's the, other, that's the other structural imbalance, which we saw leading to the crisis of the last three years, that we know within the economies like the US and the UK, you've had this growing imbalance in terms of the take of national economy, which goes to corporations or to workers capital or labour. And we've seen that that gap has grown and grown and grown, which has then led to all of the need for these bubbles to inflate. That's the sort of long-term structural change we need to address both in the UK and in the US. And, And the key way of doing that is to raise the value of wages so that once again we see some of the returns going to labour, not just to capital. That begins to build building blocks which are a much more positive cycle of growth away from austerity, away from recession, rather than the shrinking, disaster-prone, recession-filled models which we've got at the moment. So I think that in terms of a long-term strategy for getting out of the problem, redressing the balance within countries rather than just between countries has got to be at the centre of it. Sukhdev, the problem with what Larry and John are saying is that they might be right, but it doesn't help you when you're staggering on from G20 summit to G20 summit and you're dealing with 19 other world leaders. So how do you get out of this particular mess? The normal policy is fudging. But um, <laughs> but in terms of kind of, let me step back in terms of uh, Larry's earlier point. Traditionally, what tended to happen was countries industrialised and exported in particular areas, particular product areas. And what tended to happen was that they would migrate to kind of higher value end products. But that would coincide with rising productivity with rising wages. You're not getting that partly because of the exchange rate, but partly um, when you're talking about China, you're talking about one billion as a population, a small fraction of it in manufacturing. So you're not getting those kinds of traditional adjustments that would occur, say, over five or ten years. In terms of kind of where do we go from here, I'm a bit puzzled because the problem is not just with China in terms of trade imbalance. If you step back to the British economy, its problem is with Germany. There's a huge imbalance inside the European Union. But it's a convenient kind of ploy to look across halfway across the world and say, oh, that's the cause of our our troubles. Define the problem with Berlin then. If you look at kind of German growth and you step back and say, well, where has all the GDP growth come over the kind of Schroeder-Merkel period? Nearly all of it has come from trade. Um, If you added up the GDP growth and then the surplus on trade, you will find that they will match one for one. So Germany can have restrictive monetary policy and pull off all kind of policy levers while its manufacturers particularly find kind of salvation in export markets. And that is creating imbalance too. But we discuss China and perhaps India in the next kind of two or three years, but not 
the regional localised imbalances. Germany's doing well because China's doing well. I mean, the reason that Germany is really exporting like crazy is because it's very, very strong in machine tools and the bits of kit that countries need when they're industrialising. So yeah. if China's booming, then Germany's booming as well. I mean, that's the reason that the, Chi- the Chinese are getting lots of support from, from the Merkel government because the, I mean, the Germans are doing really well out. Really well out yeah, moment. but what's it saying? I mean, I think, I mean, in terms of the solution, I mean, it's interesting that Geithner came up with his proposal a couple of weeks ago, which was that you know, there needs to be action on exchange rates. It also needs to be structural reform in both surplus and deficit countries. So surplus countries, they need to import more and boost their domestic demand. But flips are that... For the ones who are um, doing natural resources, which is a wonderful sense of the US interest, saying, don't cut off the oil, don't cut off the things we need, but just a bit of pain. But the flip side is that countries like the US and the UK would have to... Export more, manufacture more, consume less. That's quite a quite a bitter pill to swallow in the US, and it runs slightly counter to what the Fed's doing, which is trying to sort of solve the problem painlessly by more more QE. But I mean, essentially, the the real problem goes all the way back to the Bretton Woods creation in 1944, which was that in terms of how the adjustment is is affected, that all the pressure is on deficit countries in order to, to, to take the pain of adjustment. And there's no there's no sanctions whatsoever on on surplus countries. So if a surplus country like Germany or China says, well, we're just going to carry on doing what we're doing, there's no way the IMF can come in and say, we're going to do this to you. It can do that sort of thing to a deficit country if it gets into serious enough trouble, and if it's a structural adjustment problem. But that, this problem goes all the way back, all the way back to 1944. And Geithner's right, there does need to be structural reform in both deficit and surplus countries. The problem is, how do you get that? And I don't think the G20 is anywhere near cracking that nut. I th- a thing I'd, I'd like to interject here is that I don't, I don't think that imbalances are a problem. What it is is that imbalances can be a symptom of a problem. So if, one, if, if all that we did were to put in something which restricted the development of imbalances, that would only have any useful effect if it imposed a discipline which limited problems from arising. So the sort of problem that you can have is associated with a good thing. So I can get an imbalance if people expect my economy to be growing faster in the future relative to other economies than it w- than was the case in the past. What that will mean is that I will suck in capital because I'll, there'll be better investment opportunities in this in this economy than in others. So because there are because there's the sucking in of capital, then just arithmetically I end up with um, deficits on my current account, so I end up with trade deficits. But that is a reflection of something healthy. When it becomes unhealthy is when it's not a reflection of genuine differences in growth, but rather um, symptoms of things like a a denial of an ability to absorb structural change. So, for example, if what happened was that something occurred in my economy which ought to result in a bit of a downturn, but I then indefinitely try to run very, very loose monetary policy, then I can have a deficit arise, an imbalance arise as a consequence of that bit of denial. But it's actually very difficult in practice to disentangle the healthy imbalances from the unhealthy ones. And I think it would be a mistake to think that that a solution to this just lies in saying what we're going to do is say there aren't allowed to be any imbalances because there are many situations in which we want to have imbalances in the world. There's a much more fundamental challenge here to the, to the heart of globalization. We've seen globalization as a project spanned out over 30 years of liberalization, deregulation, and open markets, the free trade agenda. And that's come to a shuddering halt. And I think that's where we need to be focusing on, on, on the future. We've even had the high priests of globalization, like Paul Collier, saying there has to be a rethink in this. You know, the idea that poor countries can trade their way out of poverty is dead. 
That is not going to happen to the future. We're not going to live in one beautiful global village where everybody's interchanging. We've got to rethink that model. And that means much more managed economies, much more intervention and much more regulation in the long term. Andrew, don't you think that John's got a point that the, sort of, the moment of you and other free traders is sort of past now? Uh, I don't think that's at all. I think that there is obviously an intellectual threat to some of these concepts created by the financial crisis and many misinterpretations of what was going on in the financial crisis. Of course, one could react to these um, events and say, look, what this shows, as many people are reacting, what this shows is that uh, some kind of liberalization agenda has failed, is flawed intellectually, and we need to go down a completely different path. I think that would be a great mistake, because I think that the, that the crisis that we've had was not a consequence of too little involvement of government in various ways, but of misconceived intervention in certain ways, and actually excessive involvement. So the the really key thing that governments have done here is to uh, underpin private investment. So they've offered government state backing to various kinds of private investment. So if you bought bonds in in, in Greece, then it turned out that other countries were going to back you up, even though it was a a daft thing to have done. If you bought bonds in all all kinds of um, foolish, over-levered banks, then it turned out that states were going to back you up. If you deposited your money in ISAVE to take advantage of um, the very high interest rates that were available in those relative to other banks, then it turned out that governments were going to back you out. That isn't anything remotely like capitalism, in which there are, there are no consequences to foolish investment decisions. So what I would see this, this crisis as is, there are many things going on, but a really key component of it is actually a refusal to engage by governments with a key consequence of a, a market capitalist order, which is if you screw up, you have to take the pain. And a denial of that is not capitalism at all. In terms of kind of, you know, the, the, the dislocation that occurs, I mean, obviously, kind of, you know, industries kind of thrive and then they decline. But the unsettling of particularly industrialised countries that suffer from mature product markets. Let's run through kind of the UK rather than the US. If you go through kind of the, the, the manufacturing kind of trade deficit, sector after sector is in kind of chronic deficit. And there is, seems to be no kind of correction device here other than we now make our way through financial services where we've got a line now of derivatives exports. I mean, you know, um, that's what we do. But in terms of kind of the burden of adjustment, I'm not quite sure whether you leave it to kind of this invisible hand to correct the market because there are cyclical issues. The cyclical issues are in a mature product market, when the market turns down, it has a dramatic effect on particularly industrialised countries' manufacturers. Now, coming back to the original point that, that was made in terms of increased wages, manufacturing, where most of the tradable goods are, they typically distribute 70% of their value added as wages. You couldn't get much higher if you wanted to. In terms of kind of an adjustment, um, the adjustment, Larry, comes through kind of the burden of adjustment always falls onto the deficit runner. And there is a kind of a serious kind of fault line there. But what if the, there is no kind of solution? How do you muddle along? Well, you have currency crisis. We don't talk about balance of payments crisis, but perhaps we'll get balance of payments crisis. Where does policy actually stop where we can say we can have, in certain instances, managed trade, huh? which ensures that kind of disorderly, say, retreat or advance. But what you've got is new players and low wage areas that have high productivity and then can access industrial markets and also make a surplus on those. And they can reinvest because their kind of labour share of value added is something like 30%. There is no kind of immediate policy I can see that can actually resolve those issues. Larry, if we've got a situation where our sort of world-beating export is CDOs, 
and CDSs, then doesn't Britain need a bit of protectionism? We do have protectionism anyway. I mean, you know, if you but look at banks, largely. Well, you know, if you look at the if you look at the areas that we have real comparative advantages in the UK in manufacturing, it tends to be aerospace. Where there's been a very big client there, the Ministry of Defence, uh, pharmaceuticals, you know, very big NHS. NHS, and the City of London, where there is a, there is a real comparative advantage there, I think, and the government has, has fostered and nurtured the City of London in a way that hasn't quite a lot of the rest of the economy. So the idea that the government here does not actively support bits of the, the economy is completely false, and it always has done. Ultimately, we are going to have some form of managed trade or protectionism because I, I can't see anybody dealing with these problems through the G20 process. That's that's the way this is heading. Would that be a disaster for the UK? I don't think it necessarily would be because I see the UK now as so hollowed out in terms of its industry that we are effectively, if we want to be a manufacturing power, we have to re-see ourselves yeah. as a developing country. And if developing countries always use some form of protectionism. You know, that, that, to me, is the lesson of history, which is that developing countries see the need for protectionism. And it works. Protectionism works for the poor emerging countries. To industrialise behind tariff walls is a good idea because you don't then get the full blast of competition from more powerful players. So if, if, you see, if you see, as I do, Britain is essentially a very weak industrial power, then the logic of my point is that you then probably do need some some form of government assistance. So what are we? Are we Korean in the 1950s then? Something like that. Or is this Korean 61 or something like that? <laughs> John, Larry's taking us into the crystal ball territory, so let's carry on for the end of this. Give us, give us one sort of prediction how this works itself out. Well, I had a, a great chat with a couple of Indian economists at the WTO, and they said, what's next for Britain? You know, you've gone through all the stages. You're ahead of everybody else. You've lost your agriculture. You've lost your manufacturing. You've lost most of your services. And in the long run, your financial services have got absolutely nothing to compare with the ones which are coming out of East Asia. So where are you going to go next? And I think that uncharted territory is exactly what it's about. Maybe we should just be a theme park for people to come and see what life was like in the old days and heritage and all that sort of stuff. But there needs to be something far more challenging to the future of British and also European trade. For example, European Union has got its new trade policy being published this week coming. And that's very, very aggressive. They see that it's a declining state and they need to try and force open other markets. That's not going to be the answer in the long run. We've got to have a real rethink about our position in the world, our position vis-a-vis globalisation. Andrew Lillico, briefly. So if the, the US gets poorer, um, there's probably relative, much higher inflation in the US than people anticipate. China and India grow quite a lot, and that's good for the UK. It provides an opportunity for us to export. We continue to be a major trading nation. We continue to be a big um, player, in fact, in manufacturing as well. We're the sixth largest uh, manufacturer in the world still. So our focus switches a little from exporting quite so much to the US to exporting rather more to China and India. We only export 2% of our exports to China at the moment, less than we do to Ireland. I mean, it's kind of... It's, it's yeah, so large scope to improve. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> so, Nev, so we end up exporting banking services to China and India, is what Andrew's saying. Then. No, not that. <laughs> well, what, so else, what else can we sell them? Well, securities and broking, um, other business services, legal services, management consultancy, pharmaceuticals, um, manufactured goods, high-end manufactured goods, all kinds of things. You agree with um, it, Nev? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Let's go back to kind of manufacturing. British manufacturing typically now is a supply industry where most of its demand is intermediate, derived demand for the bigger brands. So you mean by that we make parts? We make parts that are price sensitive and are always likely to become victims of kind of low wage regions. It's always going to happen. Um, And yes, there might be scope to export 
odd bits and pieces to say China or India. But I don't think manufacturing is the area where we're going to really see some kind of comparative advantage for Britain against these new areas. In terms of kind of financial services, partly the surplus is as a result of hardly any contested markets. In terms of imports, there's hardly any imports of financial services in Britain. How long will that last for when many of your big kind of, you know, uh, trophy banks are actually owned by foreign owners? Financial services, yes, it's a good kind of advantage for the time being, um, but most of your trade is in kind of visible goods, and I can't see that being corrected very quickly. And on that cheery note, that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Larry Elliott, Andrew Lillico, Sukhdev Johal and John Hillary. The producer of this podcast was Ian Chambers. My name's Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to start your free 14-day trial of audible.co.uk and to download your free audiobook. Head to guardian.co.uk slash audible. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.